Welcome back to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. So, Dr. Kleena Nikalik, infectious diseases and internal medicine physician, is my guest on the podcast today. So, Kleena's work focuses on the effect of socioeconomic status and psychosocial stress on aging. And as Ireland's first ever consultant in inclusion health, I am extremely honoured to have you on the podcast today, Kleena. So, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me today. Well, thank you. I'm honoured to be asked, and I'm looking forward to getting to chat. So. Great. Well, I suppose what were you like as a child and, um, you know, growing up was kind of medicine or medical science is kind of what you wanted to do. I can see you shaking your head already. So what what was the, the passion back then? <laughs> so when I was little, I wanted to be a detective. I loved like Sherlock Holmes books and stuff. Um, and I think in some ways that's kind of like some of being a doctor and being a researcher is like that. You know, it's finding all the clues and putting them together to get the story. Um, so, yeah, I guess in that way, like kind of did come true and then I when I was in school like in secondary school I always loved English I love reading and like the arts and stuff um, and I was always really interested in politics and rather than like rather than being interested in you know being in a political party and being empowered I was kind of really interested in in trying to you know bring about social change and stuff so then I took a gap year after school and I decided that I I'm like maybe not the world's most patient person I like, like moving around. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure I could do a job where I have to sit at a desk all day. Um, And my uncle has, or he passed away recently, he had schizophrenia and I always loved chatting to him and and, um, thinking about that. So I was like, oh, maybe psychiatry would be nice. And I um, started medicine then and then decided I didn't want to do psychiatry. Um, And then I was an intern in James's, like in my first year. And I had a patient, he was from Mongolia. And he had been shot during his military service in Mongolia in the spine. So he had like part of his foot was numb and he got this awful kind of gas gangrene in his foot because it was numb and he like didn't notice that he had an ulcer there. And he was really, really sick. And I remember I was in A&E and he was there and he was really sick. And he had this fiance who was from Mongolia and was like tiny and had a massive bump and he was about to die. And I was like, oh, and uh, the infectious diseases doctors came down and like magically made it all better. And I was like, I want to be one of them. I want to be the person that can arrive and be like, don't worry. Um, and then I got more and more interested. So working in James's, we're in a really like socioeconomically deprived part of town. And we would have had plenty of patients who were people who inject drugs. And I kind of got more and more interested in that. And then a lot of my infectious diseases work was in HIV and people who inject drugs. And yeah, that was really like, I think the start of, of um, seeing that maybe despite all the amazing research advances, like HIV is such a success story. And it's such testimony to like patient advocacy and basic research and everybody working together. And antiretroviral treatment is like 
this amazing magic success story. Um, but we still had some patients who didn't come to clinic, didn't take their tablets and died from AIDS. And that was when I was like, oh, you know, and we don't understand why, why is this and what do we need to do? And that was kind of my my launching point into this. But I, I suppose before we kind of get into the the whole inclusion health and, and huh. you know, the, the um, wonderful work you're doing with, with the, the homeless community, you know, talk take me back a little bit. So what did you do in your gap year after school? Oh, I just kind of put it aside. I made a music scene with my friend. So I was really into like indie music. I lived in Helsinki. My parents lived there. So I, yeah, I made a music music magazine. I studied a little bit of philosophy, kind of faffed around. Um, <laughs> and then you decided to go into medicine and Trinity. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I always loved biology. So I loved like, I really love um nature and like when I was little I'd be collecting snails and I'd all these books about how caterpillars turn into butterflies and I love plants I could always you know be pressing flowers and stuff so I guess and I loved biology in school so I you know I just think it's kind of beautiful like I remember learning about the kidneys and like how a glomerulus works and it's just kind of mind-blowing I loved Mm. mitochondria as well I read this book when I was little and there is these mitochondria that sang in it and I can't find it now so if any of the listeners know what children's science fiction book has singing mitochondria in it. And so I loved like cellular biology. And I remember, you know, getting into college and having like proper microscopes to look at stuff down. That was like, this is cool. Yeah, so that, I always kind of had that side as well of of liking science or liking biology really. Yeah, because it's, you know, a lot of people that I have in the podcast are, you know, kind of pure scientific researchers. So I'm always interested to know the root of a clinician because not all clinicians have to go into research. No, so absolutely. And to be honest, like it's really, it's a really hard transition. So I had my first son, he's 12, nearly 13 now. Um, and I was on maternity leave and I was like, oh God, I'm not sure I can go back. Like in those days we used to work 80, 90, 100 hours a week. We did 36 hour shifts. I was like, I'm not sure I can go back. So I thought that doing a PhD would be a bit more, autonomous and a bit more manageable and that to be honest was why I did it Um, and it was like it was a lot more flexible but it was really hard because you go from an environment that's very the rewards are very quick so you have a patient and they're sick and you give them medication and you come back an hour later to see if they're better Um, or you go into clinic and you have 20 patients waiting to be seen and you like see them all and then it's done Um, And the change of pace to research, you know, where you can be working for a year to get an experiment to work and it may never work. Mm -hmm. You may never be able to get that blot. I had Western blots, actually the same Donal. Like I used to come home and he'd be like, did your Western blot work today, mammy? And I'd be said no every day for a year and it never worked. Um, It's kind of funny that your son would know. I know. (laughs) He loved, so both my sons, but um, they love science science, because that was what I was doing when they were small. They like do experiments. And I think really kids are the perfect small children are the perfect scientists because they're so interested in everything and how does it work and what's in it and they see that like beauty and fun in the world that I think science at its best is about so yeah so I started a PhD um, with Joe Keane and Luke O'Neill as my supervisors and then I moved down to work with Ed Lavelle in TBSI and I really loved the atmosphere in TBSI like people were having kind of fun and you could like chat to people about oh what cool thing are you working on (gasps) did you think about doing this Um, so I love that like social aspect now I suppose I really see where research can help so in terms of 
like what really motivates me personally is and it sounds very trite but it's like trying to make life better for people who have a really hard life Mm. and I see that if I use research to understand it but in particular to get people to look at it in a different way to look at the kind of problems that I'm interested in that that can achieve a huge amount for the people that I want to or help make their lives a little bit easier so yeah so that's kind of I think my my main motivation apart from also just the pure joy of like nobody has ever seen this before nobody knows the answer to this question I'm gonna find it out it's so much fun <laughs> definitely um, when it works <laughs> yeah some of the time and um, and you know I suppose kind of talk to me like about inclusion health and what that phrase even means for people who may not be aware so it's a new term so like most people won't be aware so I suppose it's it's like several things. So the first part of it is recognizing that there are certain people in society who throughout their life course, and it starts like even when they're often when they're in the womb still, who have a very challenging life and who, because of social factors, have really, really tend to have really poor health um, and tend to be in hospital a lot, for example. And it's the same pattern no matter where you look at it. So if you look at Aboriginal people in Australia or travellers in Ireland or, you know, prisoners, it's the same experience. And frequently somebody is having many of those experiences throughout their life. And that that's a thing, like that experience of, of being on the edges of society and having this very adverse, you know, life full of adversity. It's, it's a, a recognised pathway. I think we tend to think of them as kind of like these random events that are randomly distributed through people and they're not. It's a very predictable pattern where A follows B follows C follows D. So that's the first thing is kind of like kind of a concept of this group of people as having these shared characteristics in many ways, including around their health needs. So that's the first part of it. And and the second step then is realizing that the reason that that happens is because of choices we make as a society. So they're not like it's not an inherited like genetic mutation. You know, there are epigenetic changes, which is separate, but it's not like hemophilia. It's not a gene that you inherit from your parents and that. There's this really cool concept that I encourage anybody who's interested to read about called structural violence. Um, And there's this guy called, really cool guy called Paul Farmer, who's an American public health person and doctor, and he's written a lot about it. But it's basically like, as a society, we cause suffering. So I work a lot with people who have a huge amount of suffering in their lives in all different ways at different times, um, due to the way that we design and run our society. So the onus is on us to not to fix that so that's why it's inclusion because it's not that there's something wrong with those people it's to do with how we have excluded them and now the onus is on us equally to include them back in so it's not enough to just say well you know HIV care is free we have a clinic here you know and if you don't come that's your choice it's around what are we doing unconsciously to exclude these people from this and what do we need to do to make sure that they have equal access. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. Totally. And and because one of the questions I was going to ask you is like maybe break down the struggles of those people as opposed to access healthcare. Um, you know, because I was reading before we came on and the fact that maybe homeless people in particular might not want to wait around A and E. They might not want to take their medicine once they leave because they don't have access to Uh, adequate like toilet facilities or things like that so I suppose yeah maybe talk to me a little bit about that yeah so it's really interesting and like a lot of it a lot of what 
there's actually relatively little research on this whole topic because people who are ignored and excluded are ignored and excluded really loads from research. But it, from talking to people, yeah, so like oh, I had a, a, a patient with cirrhosis, which is really bad, like scarring of the liver, and he was supposed to take diuretics, which are water tablets and laxatives, but he didn't have access to a toilet during the day. So like, yes, he, he was choosing not to take his medication, but he was choosing not to take it because he couldn't go to the toilet in time. Like I would yeah. choose the same if I couldn't get to a toilet. Um, and then it can be a lot around feeling welcome. And I think, you know, around a lot of it comes down to a, a sense of shame or a sense of people looking down on you. Really one of our big problems that homeless people or people who use drugs face is when you go to A&E and you have to wait for like 12 hours or 16 hours to be seen, they tend not to wait, they leave. And no matter what's wrong with them, I mean, they could have like really bad diabetes or a really bad infection or a stroke. They just don't wait. Um, and before we, you know, kind of the default is to blame them. Like, oh, you didn't wait. That's your fault. But if you talk to them, it's often because they're smelly. They don't have access to a shower and clean clothes. And they're sitting there in the waiting room with everybody else who's like, you know, I'm moving away from them. So, you know, again, it's, it's they may not have money for food, um, you know, to buy their sandwiches and their crisps from the machine. And they may not have anybody to sit with them and keep them company. Um, they may not be able to read. So in terms of how people uh, spend time when they're waiting for something to happen like yeah. that can be really different so it's all these kind of factors that that unwittingly because of how we have designed things we meet, make it much harder for some people to to get what they need literacy would be a big big one okay. like the population of James's there was some research that 80 percent of our patients are functionally illiterate like not don't have literacy of the level to read all our patient information leaflets but we still go around like yes have a patient information leaflet but like, what's the point of that doesn't match what people need that's such yeah. a high it's such a high percentage yeah it's, now that's old research and i'm not sure what their sample was but yeah it would be really high um in in you know in in certain of our our patient groups and then i think the final like the other thing about inclusion health is it's including somebody's psychological self if you can say that, and their social self, as well as their like, you know, physical, you can pinch itself. So sometimes a lot of the behaviors that we expect people to do to look after their health are behaviors that require you to think and behave in a certain way. So taking your blood pressure tablets, you need to, first of all, understand that there is a thing called blood pressure and tablets will help you. You need to think that, well, you know, hopefully I'm going to be alive in five years and I don't want to have a stroke. So I will take my tablets now to prevent me having a stroke, my future self having a stroke. And then there's all the organization around it. And, but something that we would see a lot is you know, the life expectancy of a homeless man in some homeless single man in Dublin is 44. So if I'm giving somebody a medication and I'm like, well, you need to take this so that, you know, when you're 80, you're in good shape. He's not imagining himself at 80 yeah. and it's unlikely he is going to live to be 80. So it's looking around, you know, yeah. How do people's um, psychological makeup and their experience of life, how does that affect their interactions with us? And how can we tailor our interactions to meet what their psychological their perception of the world is so a lot of my patients love the chats and um, you know then they'll come in and see me probably not because they're that much concerned about their health but because we'll have a little chat and talk about their dog or whatever and that's fine I don't care why they're there I like talking about dogs um, but it's just to tailor tailor what you're doing a little bit to the people that you're working with it's really interesting I think people's psychology and 
like we think we're these logical beings and actually we're totally not. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it is, it's fascinating. Hearing you talk about it is, is it's extremely fascinating. And I, I've read as well that you did this kind of 12 month pilot program. Yeah. In James's. So I suppose talk to me about, about that and um, I suppose how that improved the access to healthcare for these patients. So when we started and it was myself and Anne-Marie Lawley, who's the nurse that I work with, who's just like the best human being in the universe (laughs) she's so wise and she just is amazing but um we started and and for us we were really motivated but like these people are sick they need care and it's not fair that they're not getting the same access to care that other people are but there was a concern that if we provided better care and made it more friendly and easier to access that that we would be inundated with homeless people Um, and that's actually not unique to ireland or not unique to us that's it's it's a philosophical or a psychological thing called a moral, the moral hazard. And it's why, for example, in the US, they don't have universal health care because they think that if 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 we give you free care when you have cancer, you have no incentive not to smoke. OK, so it's kind of the same thing that you're like, there's this concept. That are you rewarding people for bad behavior? Are you like prioritizing people who have, you know, in inverted commas, made bad choices? So there was a lot of concern. So really, we gathered the data, not expecting to make a huge reduction in use, but expecting to show that, well, there weren't any more people coming in. But what we found was that there was this big reduction in in the need for care because most of what is in hospital in Ireland is stuff that's preventable. You know, it's people who for HIV, with HIV, for example, if they were taking their ART, they wouldn't get these AIDS defining illnesses that then mean they need to come into hospital and be here for four months and be in intensive care for a month and get loads of expensive antifungals. So it's it's stuff that's very easy to prevent. So so we saw that. And also like, it's like anything. It's like an experiment. You know, the more you do it, the more efficient you get and the more you understand the steps. So by really honing in on this complex group, Um, where there were, you know, it's really complicated to try and figure out where are you going to place a homeless person who has dementia of some degree, who's 40, who uses methadone, like, you know, what are you going to do at what point? And so by focusing in on that, we were able to get much more efficient. So when we might do something like, you know, say, okay, this person, the writing is on the wall, they're barely managing in the hostel, they probably got about another six months of independence in the hostel in them, we will start the nursing home application now so that in six months when crisis happens, mm. the funding has been signed off and there's a place. So just a little bit of shifting the focus from sorting out what's going to happen now to, to looking a little bit ahead. And, and yeah, we made really dramatic, dramatic savings in bed days, which was great because that's what you need then to get funded. So are, are you continuing that program? Yeah, then? so it's great. So now... Thanks to the universe, um, we have got permanent funding for our core team. So oh. the Matter has a similar team and we're the first in the world. So I'm so proud of like wow. proud of Ireland and proud of us. Um, but the Matter has a matching team and the team in James's and they're now permanently funded. And we'd love to expand the approach. So pediatrics are starting up an inclusion health team. And yeah, we'd love to roll it out more because I think it's just a model that works. It isn't specific for homeless people. You can adapt it to whatever your local excluded populations are and a common sense approach it's not magic I, I suppose as well like you're saying it can be applied to kind of other marginalized groups I'm, suppo- I, I'm sure like those who have like um severe addictions that are oh, not absolutely 
absolutely. So like they would automatically kind of be falling into our remit. And if we have time, sorry, I'm going to talk you into the ground now because I'm no. so passionate about this stuff. But like addiction is absolutely fascinating. We need so much more research to understand it. We like understand the tiniest bit of it. But addiction is very much driven by people's life experiences, particularly in childhood, and by what's on offer to them as adults to cope. And the vast majority of people that I work with who have very severe addiction, like they've had absolutely horrendously difficult lives. Mm. And they're just trying to get out of their head, to get out of that intolerable pain that they feel, which, you know, I would feel if I'd been through that. So I think there's so much work to do to understand what drives addiction. And we don't have any good medications for it. You know, we just don't understand it. And it's really socially patterned. And it's a big way, you know, from going to being somebody who's had a hard life to someone who's perceived as being a waste of space or a bad person, addiction is a major step in that. Because once somebody's a drug user, how people see them really changes. I think a more compassionate and um, evidence-based approach to addiction would be something I'd love to see happen. Yeah, because I actually had, I'm, I'm not sure if you you're familiar with him Brian Penny um on the podcast oh he's so cool I, I'm a fan of his I've never met him in person but and I did some work with Rob Whelan who taught me loads oh yeah that's his supervisor that's his, isn't yeah, it yeah yeah um, so it's really cool stuff about addiction yeah because because he was obviously saying that you know how he kind of started his addiction journey was a trauma in childhood and yeah. that he was trying to escape that his whole yeah. life and that was his safety blanket and even kind of during the the chat with him even the terms and the words he used to describe heroin and were affectionate terms, you know, yeah. because th- that's that was his, I suppose, way of coping, which I, I think what you're sp- speaking about there is that it's not a choice, I suppose. it's, it's a- Absolutely. It's not a choice or it's certainly not a choice that people are, have an equal an equal choice um, depending on what's happened to them. Yeah. And, and, and we really punish people as a society for, for having addiction, you know, and, and it's not a very efficient way to deal with it. Like if you oh. look at people, you know, imprisonment for for possession or use and all the small petty crime that goes with it, it really doesn't help people on the road to recovery. No, not at all. Um, I suppose another kind of area I'm, I'm interested in is the concept that this kind of socioeconomic status or um, stresses in your life might add to the aging process. And I suppose talk to you about your research in that or or your focuses in, in the is it the Tilda project? I think you're Yes, yeah, so I do a little bit. So we're we're doing a kind of homeless Tilda, but I'll wind it back and then we can like unpick it as we go. So yeah. like we know it's really like I'm amazed how more research it doesn't focus in on the biological mechanisms of this because it's really clear so you die four years or five years earlier you age five years earlier in a rich country like Ireland or the UK or the US where theoretically you've access to food you've access to shelter you've access to all those things you, you age five years more rapidly if you live in a poor area so like being poor and it's comparatively poor so it's not that you don't have enough to eat or in Ireland or the UK that you cannot access medications because you don't have the money it it's relative poverty. And when you talk to people about that, and I would have been the same, they think that, you know, you think that it's all due to smoking, alcohol, drug use, exercise, kind of healthy behaviours. But if you look at it from a scientific point of view and correct all of that out, which they can do because there are such large studies, two thirds of that difference 
is not explained by any known variable. So two thirds is just like entirely biologically, scientifically unexplained. And it's the same. So it's five years earlier in the aging process, no matter what way you look at aging. So if you look at multimorbidity, which is having lots of chronic disease, if you look at frailty, there's about a five year shift between rich and poor in, in rich countries. And then once you move into those socially excluded groups, so travelers, people who inject drugs, people who've been homeless, people who've been in prison, people who've had that really tough life, um, you're looking at 20 to 30 years of accelerated aging. And that's really poorly described. So that was something I actually, because I, I worked with Tilda and then suddenly thought, oh, like put on my aging lenses. And then I was doing my clinical work and I was like, this person is 50. Why do they have osteoporosis and dementia and COPD? Um, or, you know, I see people in clinic and I'm 42 and they're 42 as well. But like they're all, you know, lined and, and biologically much older than me, hopefully. And um, hopefully for me, because uh, they have unfortunately not great health. So so, yeah, so there's this dramatic. So if you kind of conceptualize it, that there's this gradient going along. So poverty is bad for you. And then once you hit this ex social exclusion, that's like extreme poverty and it's really bad for you. So it's a really good model to look at what biologically is causing that accelerated aging. And we don't know. So there's all these theories about like allostatic load. You should get Cahill McCrory on this podcast. He works at Tilda and he's amazing. Okay. Um, he's so cool. Yeah. yeah. He's a psychologist. So he's coming at it from a totally different angle. So you can like allostatic load is basically like the wear and tear on your body, or you can look at epigenetic kind of age. You can measure that in various, there are various clocks. And one of them is called grim age which i think is pretty cool <laughs> that's the name of the clock is it? yeah g-r-i-m in capital letters age um and actually that was the best clock when we were looking uh Cahill and i did did or Cahill did the work i just said well that's that's very interesting Cahill. Um, <laughs> so we're starting to have tools to measure that biological age which we didn't really have until now and then maybe to start unpicking what is the biological mechanism but it's so cool like there's work in primate models, Jenny Tung's lab, um, looking at the effect of social rank and social hierarchy, like, and you can experimentally mod modify it. And it's so cool, they can count it by how often you get your fleas picked out. So like how often you are being groomed as opposed to you doing the grooming. Yeah. They can like graph that on a graph and it correlates with your immune responses. So in the like lower ranking female monkeys, or when they were in a lower rank position, they had their MyD88 mediated inflammatory pathway was switched slightly on and their TRIF mediated antiviral pathway was switched off with the reverse in the high ranking monkeys. And Connor Reddy, who's my PhD student, has some preliminary work that indicates to us that that same thing is happening in humans, wow. which is so cool. And um, because then Jamie Sugru, who you might know, mm. he has done some really cool work on looking at. So the problem in humans is it's so messy, right? Because if early childhood adversity is what predisposes you to inject drugs and injecting drugs is what predisposes you to get exposed to hepatitis C. It's very hard to tease out what the various roles are. So he looked at women who got MTD during pregnancy and were exposed to a known dose of hepatitis C. And from his preliminary data, it looks like women with higher levels of education, which is a really strong marker for socioeconomic status, were much more likely to spontaneously clear the virus than women who, and it hasn't been looked at in humans because nobody was looking at social biology yeah. really. Isn't that mad? Yeah, How it's crazy. Looking at this stuff. I know, really and I, I, I'm now thinking like, you know, we should be looking at this in our rheumatoid patients, you know? Oh, you 100% should. 
And we think like, because rheumatoid patients have accelerated aging, right? They have premature cardiovascular disease, premature dementia. So there is a hypothesized link between that chronic, you know, mediated, that kind of pathway being switched on and accelerated aging. Yeah, you totally should look at in your rheumatoid patients. Uh, yeah, I must I must say that to Ursula now and see um, if we could, if we do have access to yeah. that data. Um, you probably do and nobody has ever thought to correlate it with anything inflammatory because I think there's been this like false dichotomy between social stuff and biological stuff, but actually those two are linked very closely. Yeah, it, 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 I just, when you were speaking there about, um, it just kind of is interesting the fact that it's like, what came first? Because you're talking about, you know, um, trauma in childhood predisposes you to maybe um, yeah. have a life addiction, which predisposes yeah. you to have all of these other health burden um, when you're older. So it is, it's it's complicated. I mean, it's such a fascinating area, but I'm sure it's, it's probably why there is not a huge amount of people studying it because it is so tough to tease out. Absolutely. And that's why sometimes, you know, like animal models can be really useful. So Matt Campbell, who I'm sure you know as well, he was part of this really cool paper looking at a mice at social rank. I didn't know mice at social rank, but they do. And apparently there's always like a little bullied mouse in the corner of the cage who like doesn't get the food and the other mice, like he's all stressed and his fur is falling out. And those mice have leaky blood brain barriers and display like depression, like behavior in mice. I don't know how you can tell a mouse is depressed. But like, so there's all these links that, but, you know, even with the data that exists and the models that exist that we could look at. But yeah, humans are messy, but that's okay. <laughs> um, and because I'm just interested in, you know, your your day to day as a clinician researcher, because how do you split your time? And is it, I mean, like a complete juggling act, balancing yes. act? Yes. I always feel like I'm juggling about five plates in the air, any of which may land and crash. And I have like very patient um, PhD students and colleagues. It's really tough because Ireland isn't really set up for clinician scientists. So in the US, for example, somebody in my like, kind of role would do a month of the year on the wards and do the rest of the time research with like admin support and all kinds of support. But I try to do everything at once. So I do on my week, I try and keep Thursdays sacred for academic work because you need time to read and write. Like you can't fit that in around everything else. Um, And then on other days I do like a ward round or a clinic in the morning and then try and do academic stuff in the afternoon. Obviously, because we're setting up a new service in inclusion health, there's a huge amount of work that goes with that and getting funding and figuring out how to do things and coming up with memoranda of understandings and terms of references and all this kind of stuff. It's a bit like labeling tubes. Okay, admin kind of, yeah. Yeah, but we Um, just got an administrator, which I'm so excited about, and I could feel like about an extra 10 centimeters at my height (laughs) as like all this weight went off my shoulders because I didn't have a secretary, so I was like trying to... Yeah, Keep manage everything. Everything. Um, suppose, you know, kind of looking at your career to date, like what drives that passion for what you do and what do you love most about being a medic, but also I suppose an academic medic? So I really love it. Like my littler son, who's seven now, he said to me, mommy, like, do you love your job? And I was like, yes, I absolutely love uh, it. And I love the combination, which I wouldn't have thought I would do until like I did my PhD and and kind of really got into that because there is so much that we don't know about health and medicine and stuff. So like to be able to be chipping away at that at the same time as you're working with patients and getting ideas that feed into it is really satisfying. And I think for me, I don't know, but I mean, some of what we do it's really sad. And, you know, a lot of my patients that 
I'm really fond of because I you know, know them well, get to know them well, have died. We hear a lot of sad stories and it can be hard to see all the potential, you know, like I think that's what can break break your heart a little bit. It's like, you know, these people are full of life. They have family that they love. They have things that they love doing. They have all this intelligence, curiosity, like all these cool human, you know, compassion, all these great human traits. And they don't get to to express those fully because of how their lives are. Um, but I think then being able to, to kind of do research into it and to feel like you're fighting on that front, it helps probably balance the the sadness like I never feel hopeless and and it's really fun being a supervisor like I'm only my first PhD student hasn't submitted yet and then I have a couple more but like I hadn't realized how proud you would feel of them and like it's not like I've done anything I've just like watched them develop but it's it's um it's really cool and fun to see that and see their strengths developing and that's that's another really nice part and actually, so just when you were talking there, a question that I meant to ask you was, how has COVID been on this whole thing? Really hard. And I think like for me, it's been even harder than normal to juggle everything. Like I'm lucky because my husband is a lecturer and works part time. So at least I didn't have the childcare disaster that most of my friends had. But last spring, I went back to full time COVID clinical work and I literally just dropped all my research activities for a while and then I was really lucky because I have like Nalik and Burke who I collaborate with and all my other collaborators kind of just picked up those pieces and kept an eye on my students and stuff but yeah now I'm doing loads of COVID research so COVID is brilliant because it's socially patterned as well right so it's a really good example Um, and I think people maybe who weren't that interested in social determinants of health are now like oh actually there is something going on and mm. um, so I'm really happy that I've been able to channel some of that interest in COVID and some of the funding and um, to look at social determinants social social biological determinants of health or whatever you want to call them yeah yeah and um, on on a more negative vein what do you find frustrating about academia or what kind of do you wish we could improve upon so what I find really hard is I'm trying to think of how to phrase it but like how it's rewarded and recognized and career progression. So it's a really collaborative endeavor, right? Science, like who can say who came up with that idea first? And, you know, we all put in our little bits and then we build it. Um, And so I think of things like, you know, where people are on authorship lists, how grant income is obtained and, you know, what gets funded, how that's recognized and how people's outputs are measured. I think that that can make people feel very insecure which I don't think is necessarily the best environment for, mm. like that's not how science is actually done. No. Like you actually need to collaborate and share and do things together. And um, so we're, we're kind of like, I don't know, measuring it in totally the wrong way. Yeah. Um, and that, that's the bit that I don't like. No. Also, I don't like the admin, but <laughs> there's admin everywhere. I really don't. I've got overdue grant reports that I'm supposed to have. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people say admin to this question. <laughs> it's um I suppose it has to be done but yeah not it very does fun. but yeah and then I always have like oh there's a really sick patient that I need to go and see or a family I need to phone so I can always find an excuse not to do it <laughs> um and I suppose Lena like w- one of my last questions for you is you know if you weren't um in the job or the role that you are in today where do you think your life would have ended up or what career do you think you would have had which um, might be a difficult question that's a really, I suppose, like, I've been doing this for 20 years, being a doctor and it, my identity, like my, mm. you know, personal development. I've been a doctor 
Jesus nearly longer than I haven't almost like almost half my life mm. and it's not just a job like being a scientist you know it's something that you you do oh what else would, I don't know I on some level I really would have liked to be a stay-at-home mum so I love kids and I love like I found it really hard to go back to work when they yeah. were small so I think that would have been another path that I would have enjoyed did you have to do a lot of homeschooling with the COVID? So my husband did most of it and it's great because this is one of the great things that I didn't know. If you're a nerd, your kids usually are really nerdy as well. And so you can happily, like we subscribe to all these science magazines. We have a microscope, you know, like, so it's actually, they're, they're quite easy to homeschool because they're like, oh, so cool. Maths, let's do maths. <laughs> I hope that lasts for a long time. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah, it's really fun, like to be able to share that with them. And it's magic. Like I remember... I don't know, when I was doing my PhD and I was like modifying, putting a mutation into cells, like basically I changed cells. Like it was amazing, like to be able to think that I did that. Yeah. Um, it's like, Donald, I changed a cell's DNA. <laughs> it's like, cool. He wouldn't say that now. He's 12. Yeah, he's, like, oh, he's too cool. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so embarrassing. <laughs> but yeah, so like it is. It's kind of an amazing job. And I love how much scientists love their work. Mm. You know, like a good lab meeting where everybody's like, oh, did you see this? Look at this. It's, it's um, fun. And so my last question for you, I suppose, would be if you were to go back to maybe 18-year-old Kleena, what advice would you give her? Or, mm. or what advice, I suppose, would you give to younger, maybe, researchers? One would be don't get frustrated if your experiments don't work because that is totally par for the course. I remember nearly crying and one of the researchers here in, in TTM, I was like, it's called research for a reason because you have to repeat the experiment <laughs> a million times to get it to work. And um, yeah, and just in general that it's okay not to know how to do something at the start. It's okay to just start somewhere and figure it out and make it up. No, nope. yeah, perfection is not not an option so don't worry about it <laughs> well I think on that note um it has been so lovely to talk to you and I really think a lot of people will will firstly hear the absolute enthusiasm and passion from your voice from this and um secondly I hope will get more interested and, and yeah I would love that so that's my dream my dream is that like Trinity and all over the world people will do lots of social biological research and we will understand it's like when we didn't know what viruses and bacteria were and we thought they were caused disease was caused by miasmas or whatever bad humors <laughs> we're kind of at that stage still in social biology so it's a great area to work in um well thank you so much for coming on the podcast <laughs> So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Tuesday.